You're listening to The Industrial Movement, where we discuss the people, the processes, and the equipment that drives American manufacturing. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The Industrial Movement podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and the show notes can be found at our website at www.theindustrialmovement.com. Come back often and feel free to add this podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow the show on Twitter at The Industrial Movement or on our Facebook page. All links to our social media can be found in the show notes and also at the bottom of our website. Now, let's get on to the show. Hi, folks. Welcome to The Industrial Movement. I'm your host, Morty Hodge, and with me, as always, is my trusty sidekick, Greg Smith. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today's podcast is going to be a solo cast. This is our very first solo cast, but we'll be mixing these in intermittently throughout our episodes. And today's solo cast is going to be on, and we're going to try to focus on people who have had an impact on manufacturing in America. And today's solo cast is going to be about one of my favorite people, Henry Ford. I grew up in Dearborn, Michigan or Dearborn Heights, Michigan, just a few blocks outside of Dearborn. And I went to school in Dearborn. And of course, that's where Henry Ford is is from. And that's where he started and made all of uh, the interesting products we'll be talking about. So the impacts he's had on manufacturing is really three main areas. The first is the moving assembly line. The second is what's termed welfare capitalism, which we'll dig into a little bit later. What does that mean? And then the thirdly is really perfecting vertical integration for manufacturing in America. Greg? Yeah, so his early life is very interesting. He was born in a family farm near Dearborn, Michigan. He was not a fan of the farm. <laughs> he only loved it because of his mother, and then she passed on. But he left the farm, moved, went to Detroit, found work at 16, at a machine, Westinghouse Engine Company. That's where he was introduced to the internal combustion engine. So that's kind of, and then he got fascinated with that, obviously. And then in 1896, working for his idol, Thomas Edison, he got a job at Detroit Edison. He wasn't able to meet Edison until later, but that's where he completed the first vehicle he called the quadricycle. A lot of people think Henry Ford invented the vehicle. He didn't. He didn't invent the vehicle. He didn't invent the internal combustion engine. What he did was he perfected the moving assembly line and really started to make cars available and affordable for everyday American. So Ford Motor Company, it was not his first version of a company, which I personally can relate to, but Ford Motor Company was founded in 1903. And like most companies. If you're not involved in starting a company or founding a company, this might seem unusual, but the path to success is never a yellow brick road. It's more of a a checkerboard of reincarnations and sometimes legal battles. Back in this day, it was, you know, patents and different things. So there was a lot of turmoil early on, but eventually in 1903, settled on Ford Motor Company Some of Ford's first investors, interesting enough, were the Dodge Brothers, and they were some of the major investors in the Ford Motor Company. This is where, later on down the road, Ford obviously invented and created the Model T, and this was the vehicle that changed America and changed the world. This vehicle was offered as low as $260 in 1925, and for the first time ever, Everyone could afford a car. Most people could afford cars. 
This was before roads. There, this was before highways. This was before anything like the suburbs. None of this stuff existed because the car is what made all of this happen. And this really happened with Ford Motor Company starting in 1903. The original investment was $28,000 to start the company. Isn't that incredible? I think everyone listening on this podcast would be more than happy to invest $28,000 in 1903 (laughs) uh, in Ford Motor Company. So the first of the three pillars that really Ford had that impacted manufacturing, the first was the assembly line or specifically the moving assembly line. Henry Ford, his main obsession in life was designing, inventing, but also, he obsessed with efficiency. That was one thing that drove him crazy was wasted time, wasted resources, wasted effort. He really was obsessed with efficiency. And every time he looked at a project or he looked at an issue, he looked at it from the perspective of what could he do to increase efficiency. So they came up with four main principles while studying And he really looked at slaughterhouses at the time used a moving assembly line. There was different parts of the food processing and canning and different things that used different variants of assembly lines. And so Ford and his group, they studied different types of assembly lines and then came up with a game plan of how they could implement this in their process. And so he came up with, or his group came up with four main principles that would really further their goal. And they were interchangeable parts, continuous flow, a division of labor, and reducing wasted efforts. So those were the four main principles. The first one, interchangeable parts. By using interchangeable parts, that meant that the individual pieces of the car would remain the same every time. This meant improving the machinery and the cutting tools used to make that part. And then low-skilled laborers could install these parts and replace a skilled craftsman that used to make it by hand. So therefore, he could take lower-skilled labor and work faster by using interchangeable parts. The second one was continuous flow. The process of building the car, it needed to be arranged so that when one task finished, immediately another task began with minimum time spent in setup or for the next project. Bringing the work to the employee as opposed to the employee going to the work, walking around the work that needed to be done, this was a main way that continuous flow could keep manufacturing the process moving in the right direction. The third principle was the division of labor. So breaking the assembly of the Model T, he broke it down into 84 distinct steps or processes, and each worker was trained to do just one of those steps. So instead of having multiple craftsmen that were higher paid, skilled labor, that could do a multitude of processes or steps, that took longer, he took lower skilled labor that cost him less, broke it down into 84 smaller bites, right? Everybody knows how do you need, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. So he had 84 smaller steps and trained those 
employees to do and perfect just that one step. The fourth principle was reducing wasted effort. This is so interesting. Henry Ford went as far as hiring, which I didn't know these people exist, but motion experts. So he brought in this gentleman, I can't remember his name, but he studied the motions and the movements of his employees as they were assembling different stages of the process of manufacturing the vehicles. And he made notes and made calculations and came up with different movements that were specifically designed to save time and maximize the efficiency. It was absolutely incredible. So those four pillars are what they used to come up with the design, their moving assembly line. After all of this was implemented, the Model T, which typically took about 12 hours to manufacture, they got it down to just over 90 minutes to make that car. And it required much less manpower. That's night and day. 12 hours down to 93 minutes. As manufacturing experts and leaders, we would kill to get our efficiency to those types of levels. Yeah, the idea that he had behind of doing this was to make the car so affordable that all middle class and even his own employees could afford to buy one. That's exactly right. And uh, he butted heads with a lot of the other car manufacturers because they didn't think that way. So after the assembly line was introduced, the cost of the car went from $825 in 1908 down to $260 in 1925. So while most companies, the price prices of products increase every year, based on inflation, cost of labor, various different cost of materials, Henry Ford was able to chop his prices down two-thirds over the course of, you know, 16 years, 17 years. That's incredible. Like I said earlier, the Model T changed the world. It changed America for the better. And it was all really based on the moving assembly line. Yeah, in the end, he sold over 16 million of them in 19 years that it was being made. And it's still one of the highest selling cars of all time. That's pretty crazy. That is. So, you know, part of the creating the moving assembly system is a lot of this, as Morty spoke about with the skilled laborers, because they were only doing one task in the process, you know, a lot of them found it boring or they didn't like the time restrictions because, you know, you had to keep moving. So a lot of them were leaving and going back to other manufacturers. Interesting story about the Ford Proving Grounds. I grew up in Dearborn, Michigan. And as kids, we would ride through the alleys looking to collect pop bottles or beer bottles. And yes, from the folks down south, I did say pop. That's what we set up in Michigan. And down south, it's known as soda. So soda bottles or pop bottles. They had a 10-cent deposit on them. We'd ride through the alleys, collect pop bottles and beer bottles, take them to the local convenience store, turn them in, get a little bit of cash, and we'd go to Little Caesars and get a order of crazy bread, go down to 7-Eleven and get a Slurpee, and then we'd ride our bikes, right, with barely one hand holding our Slurpees to a few blocks to the Ford Proving Grounds. We would stash our bikes in some trees, 
We'd climb the tree up and sit on the top of the wall, eat our crazy bread, and drink our Slurpees and watch them, hoping they would be out testing some vehicles. And of course, as always, we really hoped that they would have the Mustangs out. And a few times they would see us sitting on the wall, never said anything to us. And uh, I always felt like if the Mustangs were out, they kind of hot dogged it a little bit kind of showing off for us and it was uh it was a real treat so i appreciated growing up in that community and that was a a fun story so fast forward to world war ii the u.s government comes to henry ford and they need to mass produce a bomber called the b-24 liberator and so ford built willow run airport and started to manufacture the b-24 liberator for the u.s government And of course, he builds the largest assembly line in the world at this factory. A lot of first and a a lot of big things, a big scale for Henry Ford. This plant produced about 650 bombers a month up until 1945. One of those bombers were produced every 59 minutes at its peak a rate so fast and so large that the U.S. military couldn't even keep up with his production. And Henry Ford and that that bomber really helped end World War II. We all know about the big bombings that put it to rest, but in different theaters of war, the B-24 was, was a critical piece of bringing peace to the world and bringing that, that to an end. The actual first product that came out of River Rouge was a boat. That was, they used, the military used to track submarines. Interesting. All right, Greg, you want to talk a little bit about Henry Ford and his pal, Thomas Edison? Yeah, obviously, you know, Henry Ford being an inventor, along with being an entrepreneur, he worked at Detroit Edison, so he was a big fan of Thomas Edison and didn't get to meet him until much, till later on when he went to a Detroit Edison convention in New York in 1904, being a big fan. He was there actually snapping photos of uh, Edison, and they, they actually got to meet. Was he taking selfies, Craig? Yeah, yeah the 1904 version of selfies. <laughs> and uh, and so they that's how they met. And then, obviously, they hit it off. And both being inventors, they both encouraged each other. And, uh, you know, obviously, they became lifelong friends, and along with other, you know, Firestone and Burroughs. And, and then whoever was the sitting president, they always went on vacation together. It's interesting enough is Thomas Edison had a vacation home in Fort Myers, Florida. And so then Ford built his right next door. He also had one in Fort Myers, Florida. He also bought a plantation home in South Georgia somewhere, but I think it's still around, but it's probably like a museum now. I remember a story that later on in Edison's life, he was confounded to a, a wheelchair just because of old age or whatnot. Henry Ford was a few years younger. Henry Ford, out of empathy, bought himself a wheelchair when he was around Thomas Edison. He was in a wheelchair too, and they would have wheelchair races. <laughs> That's funny. They, uh, the Ford home in Fort Myers is now, it's a museum, and the very first car that he ever built is there. That's cool. Yeah, it was called the Mangoes. And I can't remember what Edison's estate was called, but they're right there, Mm -hmm. side by side. Edison has some workshops there. I haven't had a chance to go through and tour that museum. I've been down to Fort Myers several times, and I keep telling my wife, I want to go through this museum. It just seems we're always down there for baseball or a family vacation or something. I never really had a chance. But one of these days, I'm going to get down there and go through that. That doesn't surprise me about the wheelchair thing, because once we mentioned before, he was a 
very empathetic to disabled folks and hired a lot of them and stuff. So, and he liked to race. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> so interesting fact: he hated car racing, even though he's in the Motorsports Hall of Fame. He held records for speeds at that time, and he he was a racer. He was more into aviation. He didn't like racing cars. It's kind of interesting. So fast forward to another interesting invention or creation that spun off of uh, the manufacturing. Yeah, byproduct of manufacturing vehicles. And it's a little known fact that Henry Ford was part of and helped create Kingsford Charcoal. And Ford, as we've said before, he was not a fan of waste and really wanted to find a way to use all of the scrap pieces of wood and all the sawdust at these sawmills that he had created that were cutting up the the different pieces of lumber for the wooden parts of the Model T. With his pal Edison, Edison had created this chemical process to turn different scraps and dust into these briquettes. And so they built this chemical plant up near King, it's Kingsford, Michigan, Michigan, which is way up in the Upper Peninsula, kind of near Escanaba, if you know where that's at. That's where Jeff Daniels is from. Yep, Escanaba. Did a play called Escanaba in the Moonlight. Anyway, so Kingsford, Michigan's up there, right on the Wisconsin border. And this is where Kingsford charcoal was created. Originally, it was called Ford Charcoal Briquettes. Henry Ford had a cousin, and her husband was E.G. Kingsford. And he was the guy that Henry Ford went to because he was into real estate. He was also into vehicle cars. He had a Ford dealership at that time, too. But he was mainly into real estate, and Ford relied on E.G. to go up and procure a lot of this land that he wanted for the timber. So he was kind of naturally involved in the sawmill, and he was helping run the sawmills up there and the briquette manufacturing plant. So it just made sense, and Ford, to honor him, renamed it Kingsford. To this day, they're still obviously manufacturing. Every time you light up the barbecue grill, you now know that Henry Ford was the one that created those briquettes along with his pal Edison. Yeah, I mean, they owned that brand until 1951, I believe. So, yeah, they had it quite a while. Yeah, they did. It sold to a local group when Ford was done with it in the EG of Kingsford were finished with it. They sold it off to some local interest group. And then that local interest group had sold it off. And now it's owned by Clorox, another huge conglomerate. Yeah. They own Kings for Grill. But that's an interesting story that Henry Ford was involved in that. So that takes me to my favorite segment. <laughs> um, growing up in Dearborn, one of the prominent things to do in Dearborn, Michigan, and even in the Detroit metro area is go to what's now called the Henry Ford. What it is, is when I grew up, it was called Greenfield Village and Henry Ford Museum. They're side by side. You can get into one or the other, but they're different admissions because the museum is something great to do on a rainy day or a cold day. Lots of cold days in Michigan. And then on the nice days, a lot of beautiful days in the summer in Michigan, Greenfield Village is an outdoor village. That's what it is. I've never seen anything like this in all of my travels. I've been to a lot of places. I've been to a lot of museums. I love history. Greg loves history. We appreciate art. Uh, Greg, how many museums have we been to? I don't know. We've done most of the Smithsonian's. We've done some of the major ones in in major cities. And this one by far is the best one that I've ever been to. It's Uh, incredible. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. 
Talk a little bit about the village, Greg, and some of the things that are in there. You've been there several times. Yeah. So the village is, it's an outdoor, obviously, village. And he's, you know, wow, hundreds of buildings that he's acquired and actually had moved historical buildings from different people throughout history that have done something amazing. And he wanted to bring them all and have them in this one place where people could experience them. So he literally had Edison's laboratory from Menlo Park, New Jersey, dug up and brought and put there. So his lab is there, the Wright Brothers Bicycle Shop. The actual lab that he vetted the light bulb in is actually in Dearborn, Michigan. Yep. And one of the interesting fact about that is Edison always wanted his lab never to be on anything but New Jersey soil. So Ford dug up with about 10 feet of the soil and, and moved all the soil. So it was st- technically still on New Jersey soil, <laughs> but it's in Michigan. But just located in Dearborn, <laughs> right. Michigan. Right? Uh, and so the Wright Brothers Bicycle Museum there, and, and you can see the small little space they had to build the, the flyer. And Yeah, that shop is there, and it's, it's the incredible. actual shop. Yeah. And, and it was the actual shop that they built the Wright Flyer in. Which is, I mean, a historic home, one of the most historic homes in U.S. manufacturing history. Yeah, and fortunately, we got to actually go and experience. We've been to Kill Devil Hills, too, when they actually flew it. So, that was kind of cool to cycle that all. He's got the Heinz Kitchen there, which is very cool. And we've also been recently to the Heinz Museum in, in Pittsburgh. So, that's there's a – I love the connection. Noah Webster wrote the dictionary. His house is there. Very cool. Firestones, you know, obviously, the guy did the tires. His farm is there. The little tiny Logan County courthouse that Abraham Lincoln practiced law in is there. If I remember right, and correct me if I'm wrong, they wouldn't let him buy the house or move it. So he went in in the middle of the night with a crew and covered it up, disassembled it, rebuilt a replica, and then left. And and so the actual (laughs) building is, he has it, and they didn't even know that he had done that. It's very interesting. Yeah, those are just some of the highlights of the homes and buildings that are in there. I know he has slave homes in there. He has different homes from around the world. He has like an English cottage in there, oh, yeah. different bridges in there. Really, really neat. I just can't believe that Henry Ford, one of the most wealthy people at the time, used a huge chunk of his money to preserve these historical artifacts, right? These historical homes, historical buildings. He didn't want to leave that up to government to protect. He didn't trust them. He went and he bought the homes. He brought it to his village so that they could be forever protected and they could be visited by millions of people every year and appreciated for what they were. I know a lot of wealthy people have done some incredible things, but to me, that's right up there with with the best. So then you have the museum, like I said, is right next door, kind of attached to the village. And inside the museum, mostly dedicated to automobiles, but there's so many other areas. I mean, you're talking from furniture to they have a diner in there, one of the old you know metal diners. A lot of great signage that's been saved. There's some awesome, huge trains in there and locomotives and engines. And some of the highlights and and a lot of other historical artifacts, a lot of civil rights movement area. He has JFK's limo, the presidential limo that JFK was killed in, is there at Henry Ford's Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. He also has the Abraham Lincoln's chair that he was shot in. And I know it's a little morbid, but the blood stain's still on there. And you can go visit that chair in Dearborn, Michigan. He was killed in where, Greg? 
well, the Ford Theater in D.C., and you can, I've actually been there, part of that tour, you get to go across the street to the hotel where they brought them. And so the bed and the room and all of that's there, but the chair is in Henry Ford. Yeah, and he was shot in Ford's Theater, no relation to Henry Ford. Nope, totally separate person. Yeah, totally separate. It's just a coincidence. And then he has George Washington, the first president of the United States, his camp bed during all his military travels, his camp bed that he had is there inside the museum. And then another huge thing, like I said, a lot of civil rights, historical artifacts there, but none bigger than Rosa Parks' bus. The actual bus that Rosa Parks was on when she was asked to sit in the back and she refused and then was arrested is there at the museum. And one of the most powerful pictures there is when President Barack Obama, our first African-American president, was there, sat in the seat and has a beautiful picture taken. But very, very powerful things there at the museum. Henry Ford had a huge impact on American manufacturing. He had a huge impact on worldwide manufacturing. But he also had a very, very positive impact on America and the social and the conscious efforts at that time. The $5 a day pay was unheard of. Popularizing the eight-hour workday and the 40-hour work week that we still use for the most part all goes back to Henry Ford. The benefits that he created for his team members, for his employees, hiring people with disabilities, all of these things are still in place today, and you would hope that great companies do. He was doing back in the 1920s. We appreciate Henry Ford for what he did. It's a pleasure to have a solo cast about him and our very first one. A lot of you might appreciate this. A lot of people say he created the weekend. There you go, Henry Ford. (laughs) So when you get there to Friday at 5 o'clock and you're looking forward to the weekend, think of Henry Ford and thank him. That's it for today, folks. Thank you for so much for joining us. Have a good day. Well, folks, that's it for this week's episode. Be sure to visit our website, www.theindustrialmovement.com, to view today's show notes and get more golden nuggets of value that we have collected from manufacturing and industrial professionals in our archived episodes. On our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter and find links to join the Industrial Movement community on Facebook. The Industrial Movement Podcast is where we discuss the people, the process, and the equipment that drives American manufacturing. I'm your host, Morty Hodge, wishing you great success.